continuing through our sermon series in First Peter, or Second Peter. See, there I go again. <laughs> in Second Peter, and we're in Second Peter one twelve through twenty one. We're taking a little break from Peter for the next uh, few weeks here, actually, and then we will come back to him. Um, Next Sunday, which is, of course, Palm Sunday, Robert Knuth will be preaching, and then it'll be Easter Sunday, and then the following Sunday, uh, Chad Burrow's going to bring the Word of God to us from Psalm, I forgot now, 116. What I wanted to say, but I couldn't remember, and I didn't want to be wrong. (laughs) So we're looking forward to that, but we will come back then to Peter. But for this morning, here we are, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. This is God's Word. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths that we made known to you, or when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would impress upon us the truth that Christ is our Lord. Help us to see Jesus minister grace into our hearts by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John Bunyan's classic tale, The Pilgrim's Progress, he begins his story about the man named Christian who is wearing a great burden on his back, which is representative of his sin. And he is living his life or trying to live his life with this great burden of sin in what is called the city of destruction. And Christian is very distraught, of course, over the miserable life. He lives in that dark city with this burden that feels heavier and heavier each and every day. Until one day he meets a man named Evangelist. An evangelist comes to him and he tells him how he can be freed of this burden and escape the judgment that was to befall the city of destruction. Christian asks evangelists to where he can run then in order to obtain this 
blessing. And evangelist replies with these words. He says, do you see the yonder shining light? Keep that light in your eye and go directly there too. You see, there's a light that we need to follow. Everyone born into this world is trying to live their lives looking for some sort of light. And they're feeling their way around in the darkness, bumping into so many things that hurt and damage and destroy and crush their very souls under the burden of their own sin. This world truly is like the city of destruction in Pilgrim's Progress. We need a light that will lead us to God's celestial city of perfect peace. And he has clearly told us what that light is here in Second Peter. In fact, when we go back to verse 11 that we looked at last week, he tells us that this is the way uh, where you will be richly provided for an entrance into the eternal kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God has not left us in the dark, but he's given us a light, the light of his word, which points us clearly to Jesus, the son. And it is of that light which Peter now directs our attention. And he does this for his readers because they are facing two looming problems. First was the very end of the apostles themselves. Peter mentions that his death is imminent. It's going to happen soon. He says in verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And indeed, Jesus had. If we go to John 21, after the resurrection of Christ and after Jesus has restored Peter from his great sin of denial and has forgiven him, He says to Peter these words, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then it says this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. That little phrase, stretch out your hands, that was a common way in that day to refer to death on a cross. And so Jesus is telling Peter, you, Peter, you will die on a cross of wood just like I did. Yet through that death, God will be glorified. Why? Because Peter had been completely restored by Jesus. His sin of denial was completely forgiven And he would not deny Christ again, but face death and go to death. And and tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down around the year 60 A.D. for his bold faith in Christ. But Peter's death, his coming death, it points to a larger problem. It was a reminder that the apostles... The eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, all those apostles would one day die. Eventually, there would be no more apostles on the earth. Those who had walked the roads of Galilee with Jesus 
would be gone. Those who had learned directly from Him and heard the sound of His voice, they would one day take their last step upon this earth. And when that happens, when the last of the apostles dies, what would happen to Jesus' church? What would become of the people God when, of God when the, the last human link with the bodily Christ was no longer on the scene? What would become of the gospel? Would it fizzle away, becoming like so many other pieces of knowledge forgotten in time? Would the church perish along with the apostles? Would the grace of God come to an end? There's a second problem that comes up as well, though, that Peter is facing. That second problem was that there were false teachers who were coming from within the church. These were not outsiders, but they were coming from the ranks of God's covenanted people. And Peter will have much to say about them in chapter 2. We'll see that later. We don't know all the specific details about the particular errors and heresies that were being spread among the church in Asia Minor to whom Peter first wrote this letter, but it does appear that they were at least teaching that Jesus' coming, not just His second coming, but His coming in period, was full of myth. That Jesus didn't do everything the apostles preached that He did. And so Peter defends himself and the other apostles in verse 16 explaining that they do not follow, that this message that they proclaim does not follow some carefully devised myth. But they made known the very power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Myths were more than just fanciful stories and legends. But they were considered to be tales that were out of accord with historical truth. They didn't speak to what the Greeks called the logos of history. That is the unchanging truth that history proves to be right. In myths in Peter's day, they were sometimes used to convey a right understanding of social norms and order but they were never considered to be historically accurate depictions of truth, which is what Peter and the other apostles proclaimed the gospel to be. But here, these false teachers deny the gospel is true, and they say it is more of a myth, more of a legend. Oh, it has good things to say. You can learn some nice things about how you should order your life but it is not historically accurate truth. And as we see later in Peter, he is going to unload on them as they deserve. In denying who Jesus is, these false teachers were denying the very gospel itself. They were attacking the means of God's redemption for His people. And so... You have these two problems. You have the apostles who are beginning to fade from the scene. And you have the rise of false teachers and heresies and other gospels. And these problems we know, they exist to this very day. And the church has continued to face them. Of course, the apostles are gone. 
There are no eyewitnesses left from when Jesus walked bodily upon this earth. We cannot go to Peter or Paul or James directly concerning what Jesus said and what he did. And furthermore, the church has been ravaged by all kinds of errors and heresies arising in her midst throughout history. Believers time and time again have had to stand not only against those outside the church, but from people who come from within with seditious and destructive ideas that are not taken from God's word. So from the prosperity gospel to the social justice gospel, there is no shortage of other gospels that erode away at the very core of our faith. And they extract a heavy toll upon the church. Ligonier Ministries, uh, where R.C. Sproul used to be part of, uh, they conduct a biannual survey of theology in the U.S. And it's very interesting and also discouraging at times when you look at the numbers. Now, when you look at the numbers in broad across the United States, both believers and unbelievers, there are things that don't surprise us. We know that the world denies the word of God. But when you look at the statistics of those that profess to be evangelical Christians, it is alarming. For example, in 2020, 44% of those who claim to be evangelical Christians agreed with this statement that Jesus is the first and the greatest being created by God. That is a confusion and denial of Christ's very person and the Trinity itself. It's saying that Jesus is a created being of God, not God himself. Now, I acknowledge that they probably don't quite understand that phrase, or many people may not, but that's the problem. Error has infiltrated the church, and Satan continues to attack the church to the point that many people who confess to know Christ are confused about the Christ they profess to believe. And then you add to this noise of confusion, the noise of this world, and it seems like Peter's problem is amplified this day. And so what do we do then? What were Peter's readers to do? What are we to do? How can we know the truth? Where is the light that we can follow? How do you discern what is true when society keeps telling you that truth is relative to how you feel, rather being grounded in objective and historical reality? The truth is just a myth. How can you be certain of truth when there is so much falsehood? Well, Peter answers these problems. He says, first, you must remember what you actually know is true. That is to say, what God has convinced you and shown you by the power of his spirit to be true already in your life. You just have to remember what he has already given you. So in verses 12 to 15, Peter says three times that he wants to remind his readers. Verse 12, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. So he's not teaching them anything new. He's not giving the church any 
new revelation. He's saying, look, I'm just going to remind you what you know. He says, you know these qualities. You've been established in the truth. You just need to be reminded of it. And what is it that they already knew and believed? Well, he says, I remind you of these qualities. And in verse 15, I want you to recall these things. What are these qualities, these things? Well, simply, it is the gospel. Uh, When he speaks of the qualities, he's taking us back to verses 5 through 7, where he says, make every effort to supplement to your faith with virtue and with virtue, with knowledge and knowledge, with self-control and self-control, with steadfastness and steadfastness, with godliness and godliness, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection, with love. Those are the qualities that God manifests through the power of His Spirit in the lives of His people. So He's saying, remember what God is doing in your life that He has made you a son or daughter of His family, a a citizen of Christ's heavenly kingdom. Remember the Gospel. And not just those qualities that God is at work in you, building in you through your faith, but also the heart of the Gospel itself, the grace of God, these things that He has spoken of, Uh, being our calling and our election that God in His grace has reached through uh, before time began to make you His child. And the reality of His great and precious promises which make you partakers of His divine nature. That is to say, the fellowship with the Creator Himself. Remember these things. Remember, they are true. Which brings us to a second response to these twin problems of the apostles passing and the rise of false teachers. So Peter, by reminding us of what we know, reminding us of these truths regarding the gospel, is reminding us of who we know. You see, the gospel is true because of who Jesus is. If Jesus were any other man, we wouldn't know the gospel to be true. But because of who Christ is, born by the witness of the apostles, born by the testimony of history itself, we know that his gospel is true. So in verses 16 through 18, Peter provides a defense of the gospel that he preaches, the gospel of which he is reminding us as his readers. And it is good news because it is true news. And it is true news because it comes from the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Skeptics from Peter's day forward have always tried to claim that the Bible is full of myths and legends. We've already observed that. Because if it is, then it is no different than any other body of religious literature. But the Bible is the historical narrative describing true history of how God has been working to fulfill His purposes through a real person, Jesus Christ, the Son. And history is proved to be true, and this is true of any form of history, it's proved to be true and understood to be true by eyewitnesses, those who saw and recorded what happened. None of us were in 
World War II. But we know what happened because of those who were there and experienced it and wrote about it and told us about it. And you go go to any event in history, and that is the case, including the person of Christ. And so Peter declares that this gospel you believe that I am reminding you of is true because of who me and the other apostles saw Jesus to be. He says then again in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter and the other apostles saw the majesty of Jesus and reported exactly what they saw. And as eyewitnesses, they were close observers of Jesus' life and ministry. They could personally describe the details of his life and his death and his resurrection. And that is why we refer to our faith as the apostolic faith, the faith that is built upon the testimony of the apostles who knew Jesus personally. So everything from his birth to his resurrection, to his ascension, they are all attested by witness upon witness. And there are many examples then that Peter could have provided as an example of the truth of the gospel, witnessing to Jesus' majesty. But he goes to one in particular here. He goes to the transfiguration. That's what we see in verses 17 through 18. For when we received honor, or when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That is just a summary of the events recorded in the Gospels, particularly Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. There Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, takes Peter, James, and John by themselves up to the mountain and reveals the full glory of his divinity. His flesh falls away for a moment and they see him for who he is, the true God, very God of very God. And accompanying him are Moses and Elijah. And God's voice from heaven is heard declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am Well, please listen to him. So we have to ask the question, though, why this particular event does Peter mention as an example of his eyewitness of Christ proving the gospel to be true? Why the transfiguration? I mean, he could have gone to so many other events in Jesus' life. He could have spoken of the resurrection or the ascension. Why not go to any of Jesus' miracles? The walking on uh, the water and the rising of Lazarus from the dead. All of those do show Jesus' majesty. They attest to His power, His divine nature, His ability to redeem His people. So why the transfiguration? I believe it's because of what the transfiguration shows us regarding the person of Christ, who He is, and that relationship to the very Word of God, the light of truth that we can know and must be reminded of. You see, first in the transfiguration, Jesus was revealed to be what? To be the Son of God. 
That is to say, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. The apostles saw that. Peter witnessed it on that mountain. One person with two natures, without mixture or confusion or division of any kind. They saw that he was not the first and best created being of God, but was God himself. And as such, he is the only one then capable of redeeming us from our corruption and sin by becoming that perfect sacrifice in our place. In Jesus' transfiguration, Peter witnessed the purity of the Savior who had overcome the sin of the world. Secondly, during the transfiguration, there appears with Jesus Moses and the prophet Elijah. And why these two men? Well, Moses is representative of God's law. It was to Moses that God gave the tablets of the Ten Commandments upon the mountain. And Elijah is representative of all the prophets through whom God spoke to his people to call them to repentance, to remind them of his covenant promises to be a faithful God to them. And so the point of having Moses and Elijah both there is to simply say this, that all the Scriptures, all the Scriptures point to one person, to Jesus Christ, and they are fulfilled by that same person, Jesus Christ. So not only do we have the sure eyewitness accounts of the apostles who would report personally who Jesus was and what he did, but we have the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures telling us this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the one who you must listen and must follow. This is the light that has come into the world. And of course, Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies perfectly. And he kept that law perfectly so that he could be the savior of his people. And the third thing the transfiguration shows us regarding Jesus is that he truly is the mediator of the new covenants. When God gave Moses the law, he did so on top of a mountain, right? Mount Sinai, to be precise. Moses was fulfilling the role of a mediator between God's people, Israel at that time, and God. And he carries down to them God's word, his very law, the law of his covenants. Jesus, when he was, went through the miracle of the, the transfiguration, and Peter witnessed that, that happened where? On a mountain. In fact, Peter calls it right here in his letter, a holy mountain. That is intentional. He is connecting this mountain of the transfiguration with Sinai. Because at Sinai, God's presence came down and was communicated to his people through the mediator, Moses, giving them the law of that old covenant to his people. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, God's presence is manifested in Christ Himself, who is the mediator of the new covenant. And it is He who will write the law of God upon the hearts of His people. So then, Jesus is true God and true man. He is the fulfillment of all the Scriptures and 
of the law and the prophets, and he is the mediator of the new covenant. And all that is demonstrated in that one moment in the transfiguration as witnessed by Peter, James, and John. And they hear the Father's voice declare that all this to be true by saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what that means then is that the gospel Jesus preached must be the true gospel because Jesus is truly God. He is no myth devised in the minds of men for that can never bear the good tidings of great joy for all peoples. But He is God and He proclaims to us His peace inviting the law His law upon our hearts through His mercy and grace. That is the gospel that Peter is reminding all his readers, including you and I, even this very morning. Peter says back in verse 12 that it is his intention to remind us of these things, not just once, but continually. He says, I intend to remind you always to remember these qualities. Now you have to ask, well, Peter, how are you going to accomplish that? You said your death is imminent. Well, he does it by writing this very letter. And through this very letter, he is always reminding us of these things. You see, God, by his spirit, inspired the very writing of Second Peter so that you and me on this morning are being reminded of the true gospel of Christ. And it is being confirmed in our hearts as it is attended to by His Spirit showing us that it is true. And not only is God's Word to us true, but it is continually true. It is ongoing. It is always reminding us of who our Savior is. That very same voice of God on that Mount of Transfiguration that said, this is my beloved Son, is proclaiming that same truth to us now through His Word as it is proclaimed. This is God's beloved Son. Listen to Him. So God has not left us in the dark. Even though the apostles are dead and gone, He has not left us to navigate a world of false teaching and heresies and destructive errors, but He speaks with clarity even now through His Word. See, God's Word is the light that cuts through the darkness. And so we read in verses 19 through 21, we have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so today we can listen to God's Word in a way that the prophets of old only could have dreamed. Because we can look back and see the full scope and panorama of God's redemptive work being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, we have the prophetic Word, the Word of the Scriptures, more fully confirmed 
We have all of it and can look back upon the true historical witness of the apostles and see that it is Jesus who is our mediator, our king, our savior. The apostles agreeing with the Old Testament, proving Jesus to be true. And we have this with the knowledge that it is God who inspired his word, that he breathed out his word as the Holy Spirit bore them along in the truth, as Peter says here, revealing to them the very mind of God himself so that no scripture is made up by human interpretation, human ideas. This is not mere ideas or philosophies describing a way to live. These are the words of life. It is the revelation of God himself to us. And it is the light that will guide us then through the darkness of the world, through the confusion of human ideas and dangerous heresies. It is the light that guides us to Christ Jesus. Here in Michigan, we have a lot of lighthouses. And uh, if you're a student and you get a chance to get away, go check out some of the lighthouses. They're pretty cool. One of those lighthouses is the Whitefish um, Point Light, which is Upper Peninsula's oldest operating lighthouse. It, it began shining its bright beacon to ships plowing the dark waters of Lake Superior in 1849, and it still shines to this day. Its intention has always been to guide ships that are caught in the dangerous storms that come up on Lake Superior to the safety of Whitefish Bay, where the winds are cut and the waves diminish. And the ships can wait out the storm. And many a ship has been saved by following that light to the shelter of the bay. In fact, it was that very light that the famous Edmund Fitzgerald was looking for when she sank. And the men there met their tragic demise. But had they seen that light, they could have made the safety of the bay and been spared the danger of the storm. That's the idea of following the light of God's word that Peter is communicating to us here. We follow a light, the light of God's word, until when? Until the morning star rises, the sun rises, the morning star of Christ's return in glory. In fact, this picture of Jesus as the rising morning star, the rising sun, is seen throughout the Old and New Testaments, and it is a picture of his victory and authority as the sun shines down upon all the earth, so Christ shines down his authority and glory and power and mercy and grace over all nations to rule and reign in true righteousness. And that light the light of the Son, Jesus Christ, is the light we follow through the darkness of this world. You know, a lot of times people think they need to have some miraculous vision of God in order to know the light of truth. You don't, because He's already given it to you in His Word. See, God doesn't speak to you through visions and dreams. He doesn't send you signs now to, to guide you through life. But He does speak. He has not left you in the darkness. He speaks with a clear, shining, and resilient light of the Scriptures. 
And so if your mind is darkened and confused and clouded by all the lies that this world preaches to you, simply pay attention to the light God has provided. If you feel that you are wandering about in the wastes of unbelief, being tossed to and fro, and you're just looking for some sign to point you to that one truth, it's right here. Look to the light. Take God at His word. Listen to His voice that He has provided through the prophets and the apostles. Let the Spirit of God illuminate your life through the unchanging, ever-true, always-powerful Word of God. And so, do you see that yonder light shining? Keep your eye on it. Keep your eye on that light and go directly towards it, not going to the right or the left, for it will cut through that fog of unbelief and all the doubts and all the discouragements until that morning star rises and you see Christ in all of His glory shining forevermore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that You have not left us in the dark but you have given us a light of truth, a truth that stands outside of ourselves, outside the confusion and the errors and the anxieties and the troubles of our own hearts, a truth that is never changing, that is always there, a truth to which we can look as it shines, pointing us to the glory of Christ and the gospel that he proclaimed. So, Father, I pray that you would help us all the more look to this light. Help us as your people never to be swayed to the right or to the left, but to keep our eyes fixed upon the truth. By your grace and your mercy, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.